Well, good morning, everyone. If you haven't already, Kevin, that, I don't know, this whole, the, the facial expression, the posture feels very studious. So thank you for all of this happening over here. This is, it's wonderful. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, thank you, Bob. I was asking, I was asking Shaq earlier today, um, what is the uh, proper social guidelines for how long you can say Happy New Year into the new year? I don't, that eventually runs out. Shaq says that he thinks until I, I have until about January 31st. So, okay, okay. So Shaq was, Shaq was pretty clear. He's like, he thinks I have until January 31st to say Happy New Year so long as I am not saying it to the same person multiple times. I get one Happy New Year to each individual person once prior to January 31st. Okay, so for all of you, I think I've used it. I'm Dennis, um, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I'd like to start our first conversation of the new year with a question. What does it mean for you to be free? When you think of what it means to have freedom, what comes to mind? I think for many of us, when we think about this question, there are maybe images or symbols that can come to mind. When we think of what it means to be free or we think of freedom, we might get this image. I love the chuckles, right? It's not for everybody, but we might think of this. Bald eagle soaring. Or we might think of this. Just a person who is living free and has an open space in front of them that they can do almost whatever they choose or whatever they want with. Wendell Berry, who is a novelist and a poet, he says that our present idea of freedom is only the freedom to do as we please. That that is how we, as American Christians, most often think about freedom. And in large part, at least based on my experience, I think Wendell Berry is accurate. I think we think of freedom as something that allows us to do as we please, whenever we want, however we want. We can buy whatever we want. We can live wherever we want. We can love whoever we want. We can take on whatever identity we want. We can drive whatever car we want. That freedom means having the means and opportunity to do whatever we want in a given moment. And I think we think of true freedom in a way that modern philosophers and sociologists refer to, it, they refer to it as limitless freedom. That there's just no boundaries on it. Alan Noble, who is a professor and author, he says that limitless freedom is the idea that we can pursue our desires without being restrained by any person or anything. 
And that this is, again, the ways that we think of freedom. That it's, in many ways, a, a goal of our lives to be at a place where we can pursue the things that we want, the things that we desire without any constraints or restraints on them whatsoever. And I think many Christians in America think pursuing and attaining this kind of limitless freedom is part of their God-ordained design. Because in America, I think many Christians conceive of their freedom in purely American ways. They don't worry about their actions or ways of living and how those things might make it harder for their neighbors to see and hear the gospel. They don't care that their cultural or political convictions might make it harder, not easier, for their neighbors to discover Jesus. Because even Christians in America have had their imaginations co-opted by the American idea of freedom. The ability to do as they please whenever they want. But is this the right way for us to think about freedom? Is this the way we should think about what it means to be free? What does it mean for us? As people who are trying to follow Jesus, what does it mean for us to be free? And maybe even more importantly, what is our freedom for? The last time we talked together about the book of Acts, it was about six weeks ago, and we just finished Acts chapter 15. There, Paul and Barnabas had just finished their first missionary journey. They'd planted multiple churches. They had presented the gospel to numerous people who had heard the gospel and believed in it. And now, they had traveled from Antioch, their base of operations to Jerusalem for a meeting that we know as the Jerusalem Council. And it was at this meeting of the early church and its leaders where a decision was made to pursue unity over uniformity in its communities. It was a profound moment in the early church. The early church, especially in Antioch, demonstrated significant religious, ethnic, and gender diversity and in the face of all of that diversity, it would have been easier for the church to decide, let's just make everybody be the same. It's an easier way for us to manage and control and keep together all of these communities. Let's just make everybody be Jewish, and then we'll all be able to get along and be together. And yet it was at this Jerusalem council that the decision was made that not everybody had to be exactly the same. Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish in order to be part of the church. That both people, both ethnicities could exist alongside of each other and be part of the same church. It was a path that in many ways had validated Paul and Barnabas' ministry and the gospel that they proclaimed. That in Jesus there's neither male nor female, neither, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. For every person is united and one through Jesus. And yet right at the end of chapter 15, right where we left off, 
Paul and Barnabas had just engaged in a heated and fiery argument. The kind of argument where voices get raised, faces turn red, you say things that you would never otherwise say. And these two people who had just spent years alongside of each other, advocating for each other, doing ministry together. They had just fought for and advocated for unity in the early church, and here they can't find it themselves. And after years of friendship and partnership, they go separate ways. Barnabas takes a person named John Mark, and they head in one direction and sail right on out of the narrative of Acts. And Paul chooses a new ministry partner, Silas, and they head in another direction. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 16. Luke writes this, Paul came to Derbe and then Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now, to be fair, years ago in ministry, I would have been assigned this passage to teach and I would have read through it and been like, well, I drew the short straw, didn't I? Like, what do you talk about in that passage? And I sure don't want to stand in front of a group of people and talk about circumcision at length. And yet, as often happens with passages in the Bible, there is so much more happening in this passage than we might first recognize. Luke tells us that Paul and his team arrive in Derby and Lystra. It's roughly 240 miles from Syrian Antioch where they started their journey. It's 12 days. And immediately, Luke introduces us to a disciple named Timothy. And we can piece a few things together about Timothy based on this passage and other places that he's mentioned in the New Testament. First, Timothy is multi-ethnic. He's the first character specifically named in the New Testament who's multi-ethnic. Every character up until this point has either been Jewish or Gentile. Timothy's the first to be multi-ethnic. His mother is Jewish and a follower of Jesus, and his father is a Gentile and for all accounts not a follower of Jesus. And it's worth mentioning that at this time, inter-ethnic families were extremely unusual. Conservative Jews forbade inter-ethnic marriage. The ancient Jewish text known as the Book of Jubilees, which to this day is considered canonical by some conservative Jewish sects, it advocates a clear-cut separation, a segregation between Jews and Gentiles. Even Ezra, in our Old Testament, renounces the practice of inter-ethnic marriage. While not every Jewish person or family held this belief, it had to be difficult for Timothy. 
knowing that some conservative Jewish people in Derby and Lystra and Iconium wanted to segregate what was joined together in his body. That to them, his very existence was an abomination. I wonder what it was like for Timothy, never knowing if the people he was with approved or disapproved of him. If the people that he was with approved or disapproved of his family. Never knowing if the people that he was with truly honored and acknowledged his humanity. I wonder what it was like for him to grow up living within two identities belonging everywhere and nowhere, to everyone and no one. The second thing we can know about Timothy is that the believers in Lystrum and Iconium, which is a city 30 miles away or about a two-day journey from Lystra, where Timothy lived, they all spoke well of him. At this point, in Acts, Timothy is likely about 16 years old. The early church community in these towns would have been relatively small, but could you imagine, like what kind of character does a teenager have to have that people who live 30 miles away know who he is and respect him and think well of him? We know that the primary spiritual influences in Timothy's life were his mother and his grandmother. In one of Paul's letters, he writes this to Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. What a gift for Timothy to grow up with Lois and Eunice. And for just a moment, I'd like to speak directly to the women in the room. You have a meaningful and important role to play in the spiritual development of your children. Mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and every one of you who have mothered children who are not biologically your own. You have an important role to play. Timothy's father was present. We know that because he was the only person who had the power to prevent Timothy from being circumcised at birth. His dad didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Jesus. And for all that we can tell through the Bible and the New Testament, Timothy's father did not contribute to his spiritual development or spiritual formation. And for a myriad of reasons, this reality exists in households today. And so to the women in the room, an encouragement, your place in your child's or grandchild's or niece's or nephew's or neighbor's life matters deeply. You have the power to influence, direct, and lead the children you mother into an eternal relationship with Jesus. You are empowered with spiritual authority 
to raise up the next generation to know and love Jesus. The third thing, and where I'm going to spend the rest of our conversation this morning about Timothy, was that there was something in him that Paul noticed. Maybe it was the way that Timothy embodied Jesus' character and ways, even at a young age. Maybe there was a spiritual maturity that went beyond his age. Maybe Paul discerned that Timothy possessed meaningful spiritual and leadership gifts and that if stewarded and discipled well, could lead Timothy to one day become an influential leader in the church. And just to say this, in about 10 years, Paul's going to leave Timothy in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire, and Timothy is left by Paul 10 years from now to shepherd one of the most meaningful and influential churches in all of the early church. But whatever it was at this point in time, Paul wanted Timothy to join his team. But in order for Paul to take him on the journey, he needed to circumcise Timothy. But why? Why would Timothy need to be circumcised, especially after the fact that if we go back to Acts 15, Paul had literally just argued in this Jerusalem council for all of these people to not have to be circumcised in order to be part of the church. It almost seems like Paul all of a sudden has become wildly inconsistent. He'll go to Jerusalem and advocate and say, we don't actually have to circumcise people for them to be part of the church. But then he looks at Timothy and says, to be part of my team, you have to get circumcised. So why? Namely, mission. Mission mattered more to Paul. In every town and city, this is his strategy. We will see it clearly mentioned by Luke as we continue through the book of Acts. In every town and city Paul enters, he first visits the Jewish synagogue in town. And once there in the synagogue, he begins proclaiming the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters. But for someone to be able to enter the synagogue, they need to be fully and completely Jewish. They need to be circumcised. And what's interesting about this to me is that like this mattered so much to Paul, this integrity, that if we're going to go into the synagogues, we must adhere to Jewish custom. Because frankly, there's nothing in the early church writings that would indicate that somebody would walk into a synagogue and those synagogue leaders would be like, wait a minute, we need to check and see if you're circumcised. So they probably could have gotten away with it. And yet Paul values so much adhering and honoring the Jewish religious customs in his attempts to reach them that he looks at Timothy and says, I want you to be part of this team, but in order to be part of my team and to join me on this mission, you have to make this choice. There's a passage in one of Paul's other letters that 
many of you have probably heard before that connects to what is happening here in Acts 16. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It reads, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave, a servant to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. In just those verses, Paul gives it away. What matters most to him in his life? What matters more than anything else in his life? Proclaiming the gospel and winning people to Jesus. That first verse, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Though I am free, though Paul can do whatever he wants, live however he wants, make whatever choices he wants, or create whatever identity he wants, because in Jesus Paul knows he's free, Paul has chosen to make himself a servant to everyone so that he can win as many people as possible. So that through his life and words, as many people as possible can taste and see Jesus' goodness. Paul doesn't have a restrictive idea of what freedom in Christ means. If we read his letters, we actually see Paul at one point saying to people, you can do anything that you want. Doesn't mean it's good for you. Doesn't mean it's profitable. You could do anything you want, though. There's grace that will be there for you. So go on sinning if you want. There's grace, but every time you do that, it's as though you're crucifying Jesus again, but also, guys, you are free to live. So Paul doesn't have some like small like view of like what freedom means. He's honest in saying like as followers of Jesus, there's always going to be grace because as long as we proclaim Jesus and as long as we remain related to him, his grace will be sufficient for us. And so we can just go on living however we want. We could sin if we want to. That's not actually good for us or our souls or our hearts. It's not good for our relationships. It's not good for anything actually. But if you wanted to, you could. And so Paul, when he's talking about all of this, well, it's verse 20, I think. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. Timothy lives this out literally. He literally becomes like a Jew in order to win some of them. He understands that his freedom isn't a freedom that gives him permission to do whatever he wants. Timothy knows that as a follower of Jesus, his freedom in Jesus is a freedom to serve God and the gospel. 
Because for Timothy, there is no higher purpose than offering his life as a living sacrifice. No higher purpose than choosing to use his freedom in a way that enables his Jewish sisters and brothers to taste and see the goodness of Jesus through his words and ways of living. For Timothy, as for Paul, the north star of his life is the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, even if it means using your freedom in a way that actually causes a little bit of discomfort and pain for you so that other people can be one to the gospel. Church, what is the North Star of our lives? And I'm asked, this is a rhetorical question in the sense that I don't need an out loud answer, but I do hope you will answer it quickly internally. Would you have made the same decision as Timothy? Would we choose to endure something painful, to deny ourselves something, to say no to something we want, all so that we would have a better chance of winning our neighbors to Jesus? One of my favorite bands is um, called, it's Mumford and Sons. Um, I get it. Like, I'm white. I like Mumford and Sons. Most, I don't know what you just said, but I'm sure it was funny. Yeah, I wear a flannel. In 2018, they came out with their um, most recent album, Delta. On that album, there is a song called Delta. And at the end of that song, Marcus Mumford sings these lyrics. Does my love prefer the others or does my love just make me feel good? Does my love prefer the others or does my love just make me feel good? Marcus Mumford, he was a pastor's kid. There are moments where I actually feel like I like worship. Like I experience Jesus more sometimes through Mumford and Sons than worship music. Sorry to say that. I know I'm not supposed to. I'm a professional Christian. <laughs> Thanks, Alana. But I remember like, every time I hear those words in that song, Delta, does my love prefer the others or does my love just make me feel good? I feel like I'm being asked a question that Jesus would ask me. Like, what is my love oriented towards? And I think this is the question before us today. What is our freedom for? Is our freedom for ourselves so we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want? Or is our freedom something, is our freedom something we use to make ourselves feel good or is our freedom something that prefers other people? 
Do we use our freedom as followers of Jesus to prefer other people so that others can taste and see the goodness of Jesus through our words and actions? Timothy, by choosing to be circumcised, makes himself a servant to his Jewish sisters and brothers. In essence, he looks at them and says, if using my freedom and undergoing this painful procedure increases the odds that some of you will respond positively to the gospel, I'll do it. So if our freedom then is for service to God, our neighbors, and the gospel, how might that work itself out in our day-to-day lives? What might it look like for the Great Commission to become the North Star of our lives? If our lives are supposed to be a pleasing aroma to the people around us, if our lives are supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven, if our lives are supposed to bear witness to the gospel, then how can we, like Paul and Timothy, become all things to our neighbors so that some of them might taste and see the goodness of Jesus through us. First, I think we can embrace the reality that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. Before anything else, we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, what is supposed to guide our lives a desire to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. Those words come out so easy because I say them so often to my children. What is supposed to guide our lives is the Great Commission. Everywhere we go, we must recognize that our words and our ways of living and for what it's worth in 2024, the ways that we engage politically everything we do bears witness to Jesus. Which means we need to be constantly asking ourselves, do our words, do do our ways of living, do the ways that we engage culturally and politically, do they make it harder for other people to see and experience Jesus or does it make it easier? When we're at work, when we're in the neighborhood, when we're at our kids' school, when we're at the football field, the basketball court, on the street, when we're talking politics, are our words and ways of living making it easier or harder for people to taste and see the goodness of Jesus? Just because in Jesus we are free to do something doesn't mean we should. A friend of mine, a missionary to Nicaragua, Daniel Bain, he, used to, he would always ask this question, or he would kind of say it this way. He would say, if we go to God and say, can we do this? His answer is always, yeah, you can. The question is, should we do this? And oftentimes God's answer to that question is, no. Everything we say, everything we do, every way we go about living our lives should pass through this filter. Am I making it easier or harder for my neighbors to know Jesus? The North Star of our lives is not supposed to be the pursuit of limitless freedom. It's supposed to be the Great Commission. 
Timothy believed the gospel was worth being circumcised for. Paul believed the gospel was worth dying for. Do we? The second thing I think we can do is we can embrace the spiritual practice of submission. We've talked about this now three times over the past two months. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus instructs his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the Gospel will save it. For whatever reason, I think as Christians, we have somehow been able to read this passage. Some of us have been able to memorize it. Some of us might have it hanging on our refrigerator or somewhere in our house. And yet we've been able to actually divorce it from this, like, it's as though we can say, this is one of my favorite passages, and yet our lives don't demonstrate that we've given up anything whatsoever. This idea that Jesus lays out in Mark, it's submission, it's denying ourselves, denying our preferences, our wants, and even our perceived needs, denying our comfort and our control, denying our sense that we know better, and doing that to take on sacrifice. It's what Timothy did. It's the way Jesus lived his life, and it's the way that we can live ours too. We can choose to use our freedom in a way where we deny ourselves so that others can more fully and completely experience the gospel through us. Richard Foster, this quote has made it in three times. It's becoming a favorite. He writes this about submission. Every discipline has its corresponding freedom. What freedom corresponds to submission? It's the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. The obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society. We can release our desire to use our freedom to do as we please and find freedom in not needing to get our own way. Not needing to do what we want. We can instead discover that our freedom is intended to serve others and point them to Jesus. So, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to be free? What is our freedom for? Will we, like Timothy, be people who inconvenience ourselves and do things we're not required to do, but that make it easier for our neighbors to taste and see the goodness of Jesus? If we were honest and reflected on our lives, what really is the North Star of our lives? Is the North Star of our lives proclaiming the good news of Jesus through our words and ways of living to our neighbor? And will we be people who choose to deny ourselves so we can point more people to the only hope that truly matters? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for just these words Luke recorded in Acts, the story of Paul and Silas and Timothy, 
Father, thank you for Timothy, for who he, for who he was. Someone that we could look to and see the influence of the women in his lives, the ways that he navigated his ethnic identities, and the ways that he loved you. Jesus, would you teach us through this story? Would you help us to become more like you so that we could live more like you? We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.